Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Glad you're joining me today. Again, those of you online, welcome to North Main's online campus this morning. Uh, and happy Father's Day to you at home and to those of you here. Um, I think it's, it's sad in a culture where uh, fatherhood is in such desperate need of elevation to a place of honor that we've torn it down. It's not what my sermon's about today. It just a little lead-in this morning, I guess, as, as I'm thinking of what Father's Day really stands for. It's about strong fathers who love the Lord and who are present in the home and able to really breathe life into not only their spouses, but also to the children in whom they've been given charge over. And it's a great responsibility. It's nothing to be taken lightly. And I know not everybody has a home that's like that. I didn't particularly grow up in a home that was completely together in a sense. I had a stepfather who became, for all intents and purposes, my father, and you know my story for the most part, and uh, I love him. He passed away three years ago, and I honor him even this day in, in, in that he is no longer with us, uh, but the memories are. And my hope and my prayer today, for those of you at home and those of you here, is Though your experience may not have been in a traditional nuclear family home, um, that doesn't negate the fact that fathers are extremely important within a healthy society. And, and it's something I think we need to be leaning in toward and working toward as a church to rectify. The church that I pastored in Ohio we believe so strongly in this. Our, our vision we felt God had given us in Ohio at New Song Fellowship was to develop Christ Center to, to oh my gosh, I've forgotten, it was nine years ago, <laughs> is to develop Christ-centered families. That's what we felt that God's purpose for our church was there. And I think that's really something that every church should be about, is the establishment of healthy homes and working toward healthy homes the way God cares about and has designed, okay? So I'm going to step off of that little soapbox for a minute and now transition into the sermon for today. Jeremiah 29 is a very famous passage. A lot of people like to reference it, especially around graduation time. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a very famous verse. Does anybody know it? So, the Lord... Amen. <laughs> Actually, yeah, Sabrina had it as her voicemail. It's what you told me this morning, Sabrina Myers, everyone. <laughs> wow, that was a rousing applause for you, Sabrina. I am so sorry. <laughs> We're going to be looking at the whole chapter. Many of us can quote the verse, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans, plans to prosper you and to give you hope. Right? We know that passage of Scripture, many of us by heart. But do you know the whole chapter? I hope you do. Because if you don't, we need to understand what the, oh. 
Either I'm going blind or the light's just dimmed on me. Can you see me at home? It never fails. You know, in the nine years that I've, it'll be nine years in August that I've been here. In the nine years I've been here, the power has gone out twice in the middle of a sermon. And one of them, specifically at a time that I was hitting a crucial climactic point, and it went boom, pop, and the lights went out. You remember that? Good times. Nobody does. All right. I do. And then another time it happened, and then lightning struck the steeple, blew out all of our electronic equipment. We had to worship in the fellowship hall. Do you remember that? All right. Good enough. All right. So now the lights are off. I'm going to keep going. And those of you at home that didn't just see that, more lights just went out. How many of you have heard of the name Marilyn Voss Savant? She is supposedly the woman on record that has the highest IQ. She actually was a journalist or was an author. And <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Though that's very bright. <laughs> Thanks, thanks, buddy. <clears throat> All right, now let's get back on track. Jeremiah 29, 11. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but I want to talk about this idea of peace not being a place. Oftentimes, we, we align ourselves with this idea that peace is a place. That once I get to this place in life, figuratively speaking, or once I get to this real place, this physical place, then I will be more at peace and more at ease. What I've learned in life, in the 45 years of existence, is peace is not a place, nor is it a mindset. It's, it's really, uh, it's, it's a sense of being in Christ. You cannot have peace apart from a relationship with Christ. Now, you, you, you will probably argue with me on that, but I'm going to say you cannot have lasting peace. You can have a semblance of peaceful moments from time to time, but if you want lasting peace that can get you through tumultuous seasons of life, you cannot have that apart from Christ. I challenge you on that. Jeremiah 29, 11. There's a lot, or Jeremiah 29, there's a lot going on in this. So Marilyn Savant, she talks about in this um, in this one article she wrote for Parade Magazine about uh, contentment. And she said she had a, a reader who wrote in and, and, and asked her a question. It was an Ask Marilyn question, because she was supposedly, and is supposedly the most brilliant, intellectual, high IQ woman known to mankind. And so you ask her, she should know the answers to everything, right? So she had a column, Ask Marilyn. One reader wrote in about a unique experiment that she had conducted after being dissatisfied that her neighbor's yard looked better than her own. Have you ever, have you ever done that? I do. Because both of my neighbors on both sides, they have their yards professionally treated. And I try to treat mine by myself. It doesn't look good. Just saying. I'm an I am an embarrassment to my neighborhood. Ask my neighbors. They will tell you. Isn't that the pastor whose yard is really bad <laughs> down the street? So she did what few have done, and she walked next door to look at her own grass from the neighbor's perspective. 
When she stood in her neighbor's yard, the grass in her own yard looked greener than theirs did. So she asked, why does this occur? She asked Marilyn. Guess what Marilyn wrote back? She says, well, the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence because you're not close enough to see the dirt. Most of the time, things look better for others simply because we can't see their dirt. Okay, so when we compare ourselves to others, we are doing something that shows our lack of contentment. Yes? When we compare ourselves to others, we show others, or we're showing ourselves, that we are not happy with who we are. Now, there are certain times it's okay to not be happy with yourself. When you are not properly aligned with God's purposes for your life, there should be a discontentment. But when you are properly aligned with God's purposes for your life, then there should be a contentment and a peace that passes understanding. I would ask the people at home if you're having a hard time seeing me. Maybe the spotlight would work. I would hate for them not to be able to see. Are we getting a good video quality? All right, just making sure. Sorry to interrupt that. Contentment. How many of you would say you're content? Okay. How many of you would say you're discontent with where you are right now? That's okay. It's a harder one to answer, isn't it? Because you're like, I'm not going to answer that and be on record. Again, being a pastor, being a father, being a husband, being a son, there are things in life we think, if I hit this benchmark, if I hit this place, if I do that thing, when I achieve this accomplishment, then I will be better off. But contentment is something you have to learn for every stage of life. Paul even says this in one of his letters in the New Testament, I've learned to be content in all situations, whether having everything or nothing. And think of all the circumstances Paul found himself in. Paul was imprisoned twice. He was shipwrecked on his way to another prison in a trial in Rome. I, I, again, I'm going to have to preach on this passage sometime because I think it's, I've never preached on the one where Paul is ministering in this city and they get so angry at him about the message he's preaching, they drag him physically outside of the town, outside of the city gates, and they stone him what they thought was to death. Some scholars believe that this is when Paul was taken up and caught up into the third heaven that he writes about in another one. That's pure speculation, but I've read some scholars that say that he actually had a near-death experience there, or he possibly even died and was carried up and experienced that presence of Christ full face on. That he says, I can't even describe what that was like. Regardless, that situation, and it gets back up and it goes back into the same town, the people that tried to murder him. And this is the same guy that says, I'm content no matter my circumstances. Jeremiah 29, 
we come up on this chapter, what Jeremiah has been prophesying to the nation of Judah, which is the southern kingdom, up to this point has been God is going to bring judgment. God is going to bring judgment. God is going to bring judgment. He's going to bring it through the Babylonian kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is going to take over Jerusalem. Just get ready. It's going to happen. He keeps saying this over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because there was no more chance to change at this point. God had already determined, now it sounds really bad, but God had already determined judgment is the call. I've given them centuries. I've given them prophets. I've given them everything I conceivably know how that I, that I know how to in order to get their attention and to turn them around and head back in my direction and quit being idolatrous and adulterous, adulterous nation. And they're just, they're not, they're not, they're not doing it. They continue to forsake me. They continue to disobey. They continue to turn their backs on me. So this is the last resort. Have you ever had a last resort? Huh? Yeah, right? So I've got plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. Last resort is plan E. I hope I don't have to use that one. Because this is the worst case scenario resort. God had given them multiple plans and multiple graces and multiple mercies over a period of time. And I say a period of time isn't a few weeks. We're talking about hundreds of years. Over 40 different kings and two different nations because they divided. And we think God of the Old Testament is mean and wrathful and just... I think he's patient and kind and loving and gentle because he gave them so much time. The, the God, the so-called God of the Old Testament gets a bad rap. He's the same God of the New Testament through Christ. So in chapter 29, we get to this point, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has finally overtaken the southern kingdom. All that's left are the city walls around Jerusalem and the city itself and the temple that lay within it. Everybody else on the outside of the walls around Jerusalem, the whole southern kingdom, have now been taken captive, many of them killed, and those who weren't killed were taken off into exile throughout the whole empire of Babylon at this point. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem when he writes this letter and he's now telling the people who have been exiled and those also within the city who have not some important words. So let's pick it up in verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation today. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. There are more than one prophet. There's more than one prophet. There are other prophets supposedly of God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. <clears throat> Verse 2. This was after King Jehoach Jehoiachin, the queen mother, the court officials, the other officials of Judah, and all the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. He sent the letter with El Elisa, son of Shaphan, and Jer Jeremiah, I had these, I read through this earlier, I had this all figured out, and now I'm getting jumbled up. Jamariah, son of Hilkiah, when they went to Babylon as King Zedekiah's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. This is what Jeremiah, what his letter said. 
This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled in Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children and then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Don't dwindle away. And work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. I want you to catch what's going on here. He's saying, you made your bed, you got to lie in it now. But you're going to have to lie in it in a different city. Under different rulers. So get settled in and get comfortable. Pray to the Lord for the city you're in and for its welfare. And for its welfare will determine your welfare. Think about that. This is what the Lord of heaven's, heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they're telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for how many years? Seventy. That's a lifetime. If you're from birth to age 70. And it was a shorter lifetime for many in that culture. Excuse me, longer than a lifetime for many in that culture. You will be there for 70 years. But, but then I will come and do for you all the good things that I have promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans that I have for you says the Lord. They're plans for good, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. See, in those days, when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you from all the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. You claim that the Lord has raised up prophets for you in Babylon, but this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all those still living here in Jerusalem, your relatives who were not exiled in Babylon. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. I will send war and famine and disease upon them and make them like bad figs, too rotten to eat. Yeah, I'll pursue them with war and famine and disease and I will scatter them around the world. In every nation where I send them, I will make them an object of damnation, horror, contempt, and mockery. This is, the God's, this is God's judgment. For they refuse to listen to me, though I have spoken to them repeatedly through the prophets I sent. And you who are in exile have not listened either, says the Lord. So do you catch what's happening here? The ones that have remained in Jerusalem are the ones that God is calling bad figs. He says, I'm going to deal with them very strictly. The ones of you I have exiled, you've not done good either, but I'm going to have mercy on you because in 70 years I'll bring you back home. So the ones that God really wanted to punish, he left behind. Wow. Therefore, listen to this message from the Lord, all you captives here in Babylon. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says about your prophets. Ahab, son of Goliath, and Zedekiah, son of Messiah, 
who are telling you lies in my name. I will turn them over to Nebuchadnezzar for execution before your very eyes. Their terrible fate will become proverbial so that the Judean exiles will curse someone by saying, may the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Nahum, whom the king of Babylon burned alive. For these men have done terrible things among my people. They have committed adultery with their neighbors, with their neighbors' wives and have lied in my name, saying things that I didn't command. I'm a witness to this. I, the Lord, have spoken. Verse 24, the Lord sent this message to Shemaiah, the, Nehema, the, the Nehe, uh, Nehelamite in Babylon. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, you wrote a letter on your own authority to Zephaniah, son of Messiah, the priest, and you sent copies to the other priests and the people in, the, in, in Jerusalem. You wrote to Zephaniah, the Lord has appointed you to replace Jehoiada as the priest in charge of the house of the Lord. You were responsible to put into stocks and neck irons any crazy man who claims to be a prophet. So why have you done nothing to stop Jeremiah from Anathoth, who pretends to be a prophet among you? Jeremiah sent a letter uh, here to Babylon predicting that your captivity, be, captivity will be a long one. He said, build homes and plan to stay, plant gardens and eat the food that they produce. So here's Zephaniah, or I'm sorry, Shaphan is the one who's writing this letter as a prophet of God and says, don't listen to Jeremiah. He's not right. You need to throw him in jail. You see a battle among the leaders, among God's people, continuing even into exile? How could God really banish us? How could God really send us off? How could God punish us for 70 years? That can't be true. Jeremiah's a liar. He needs to be put in the stocks. But when Zephaniah the priest received Shemaiah's letter, he he took it to Jeremiah and read it to him. Then the Lord gave this message to Jeremiah. Send an open letter to the exiles in Babylon. Tell them this is what the Lord says concerning Shemaiah the Nehemalite. The Nehemalite. Since he has prophesied to you when I did not send him and has tricked you into believing his lies. I will punish him and his family. None of his descendants will see the good things I will do for the people. For he has incited you to rebel against me. I, the Lord, have spoken. It reminds me of a time when the 12 spies went into Israel to scout out the land, and the 10 came back cursing the land and cursing the God who sent them there because they said, the people are too big. We won't be able to do it. So God says, don't believe Shemaiah. I will do to him the same as I will do to those who will be punished he again will be a proverbial name that others will mock later on. So what's the overall takeaway this morning from this whole passage of scripture? It's this, peace can be found in the most unlikely of places and circumstances if you have eyes to see it and if you truly are locked on to who God is.
and you trust God. So peace is not a place, it's a way of life is the first point this morning. Though ideally it would have been better for the Jewish people to stay in their own country and prosper. What did I tell you? God's judgment had already come upon them. That was not the reality for them. They were to be condemned to judgment for 70 years in a foreign land that was not their own. But peace was not a place, it was a way of life. What did Jeremiah tell them on behalf of God? Put down roots, have kids, have grandkids, be fruitful and multiply, build homes, don't live in tents. This is a permanent place for you for a while. Some of you have been called out of your homeland, so to speak. You've been placed on foreign soil. You're experiencing things that aren't by your own hand and consequences of your own behavior. You have to believe that the Lord is with you if you are with the Lord. Now, if you've walked away from the Lord, you have exempted yourself from his blessings, his grace, his mercy, his protection. But if you are in the Lord and he is in you and you are obedient to who he calls you to be, he will be with you in the places you go. You've probably heard me say this before. My wife and I are originally from Kentucky. We met at college in Florida. We lived in Florida for nine years, Dayton, Ohio for eight years, and now here in August, another nine years. We've lived a lot of different places. We've explored a lot of different places on missions trips and just different travels. And it's not like the old hymn, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through, but there's this discontentment of the heart because we weren't created for this fallen world. And so there's this sense of there should be something more, right? What's next, what's next, what's next, Lord? And one of the hardest things that Sarah and Lee and I have had to learn is to be content in the moment where we've been planted. Be content in the moment where you've been planted because if you're always looking to the next horizon, you cannot be worth anything where you're planted. This is why people get way down the road in life and they look back over the course of their lives and have a lot of regrets because they would have done it differently. They would have enjoyed the moments of life when they came and not rushed them along. You see, I believe the Lord is the Lord of contentment. Yes, discontentment for the unholy things in your life. That's what we call an unholy discontent. Or, excuse me, a holy discontent when there's unholiness there. And we talked about holiness last week in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, that holy is something that has been set apart when God says you are to be holy, or when Peter tells us in his letter you are to be holy as God is holy, he means you are to be set apart as God is set apart. They would have never thought to use the things of the holy temple in the Old Testament for regular cooking purposes. They would have never taken the incense burners or the candles or, or the bread from the table and used it in some other way than what it was meant for. It was set apart for a purpose. You and I in Christ are set apart for a purpose. We are to be holy as God is holy. 
We are not to be using things that are holy in a common way. And as people, we are to be uncommon as believers in God. The Jewish people hadn't listened to reason. And now they're, they're condemned to live in a foreign land. I, I don't know, what's your hometown? Do you miss your hometown sometimes? Maybe this is your hometown and you haven't been away enough to miss it, right? I still long for my hometown from time to time. I think you guys know mostly, if you've been around long enough, you hear I'm from Kentucky, central Kentucky, just south of Lexington. When I go back there, I feel like I'm getting back home. Everything in me settles into home. Even my accent comes back when I go back home. And you hear it come out here occasionally when I'm being silly, but I'm serious when I get there, it comes back out. It was... uh, it was uh, Chris Ramos called me one time when I was down there. He's the guy that plays the congas and the bongos up here. He called me while I was down there. It was a few years back. And he's like, what's wrong with your voice? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm meeting with my, uh, we were at Kentucky Fried Chicken of all places, uh, eating and enjoying. Time. And I was, the, I was content. It's harder to be content when you feel out of place. But if you're a child of God, your place is right where you are. And where you are is where he desires for you to minister on behalf of him. But you cannot do that unless you're rooted in him. And you can't be rooted in him unless you're completely surrendered to him. Not just spiritually, but mentally, physically, emotionally. Every part of you has to be rooted in him or you are not his. Do you understand that? Every part of you, mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally, all ways in your life have to be so surrendered and rooted in him that you are the very child of God who shines a light into this world. This is why when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, you were to be salt and to be light. You can only be salt and light when you're completely rooted in him. I digress. Let's move on to the next point. God's plans, though not always understood, are for our good. Have you ever been, have you ever found yourself completely obedient to God, worshiping him with your life, And you find yourself out in the middle of nowhere or in a circumstance or a situation that just seems way off the wall. This is not what I planned. Have you ever said that? How many times have you ever said, this wasn't what I had planned? Sometimes it is your fault, but sometimes it's not. But I do believe in a God who is sovereign and who has control over situations and is able to bring good out of bad, beauty from ashes, as we sung a while ago. And so though we may not always understand God's plans, we can trust God because we know he's good. And that his plans are higher than ours, his ways are so much beyond our ways, that it comes down to trust. If you do not trust God, you cannot follow God. 
How many of you follow or listen to people you don't trust? And if you do, that's a personal issue, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. If you're following or trusting someone you know isn't true or telling the truth, that's on you. Yes, they're going to suffer judgment for lying to you and continuing to perpetuate this distrust, but you have to take some personal responsibility. We live in one of the most uneducated nations on the face of the earth. You go out and do a poll on the street about basic knowledge, not only of the Bible, but of civics. It's painful. We are ignorant by choice. Church, it pains me to see a people who are ignorant by choice. This is what the Israelites were all about. See, God had laid it out for them for centuries. Do it my way, do it my way, do it my way. Here are my plans, here are my plans, here are my plans. And they're like, yeah, we don't really like your plans that much. But as much as we scoff at them for doing that, we do the same thing. I don't like your plans that much. I don't like, I don't like that you say that marriage is only between one man and one woman. I don't like that there are only two genders. I don't like that I can't have sex before marriage. I don't like that I can't tell a lie every so often. I don't like that I can't go on and look at pornography. I don't like your plans that say I shouldn't do any of these things that I want to do. And you have a choice. And nobody else can make that choice for you but you. And you can contend, uh, continue to live in what they call blissful ignorance. I think it's sinful ignorance by going against what God's plans are, which always leads to destruction. What is destruction? Let's define that word for a minute. Because we see that word come up a lot. Destruction or destroying. What is destruction? Destruction. What we think of, what's the construction is what? To build up, right? Destruction is to tear down, right? It's to, if you deconstruct something, you're pulling it all apart. Sometimes things need to be deconstructed. But things in your life that are leading to destruction will ultimately be for your ill and not for your good, because there is an ultimate destruction that comes at the end of life or when Christ returns and you haven't made a decision to surrender completely to him. If you are allowing him to construct in you what it means to be a child of God, fully rooted in him, then it will not lead to destruction at the end of your life or whenever Christ comes again. But if you are working against God, there is no construction happening in your life. Have you seen buildings that have started and have never been finished? 
Have you seen those that have poured a foundation, but there's nothing built on it? And we say, I wonder what went wrong there. There are those of us in life that have stopped or not, not even begun. We might have purchased a plot of land with great ideas, but then we walked away from it and it's now grown up in weeds. And it's overgrown. That's what our life looks like. Because we aren't following God's plans for our life, we've decided to walk away from it. And now our life looks like a bunch of weeds, unproductive. You know, and we, and we go about daily routines and work and doing life. And we wonder what we have to show for it at the end of the day. When we live rooted in Christ and centered in his plan for us. We become these new creations. These beautiful representations of God on the earth. Deuteronomy 4, 26 through 31. Moses knew centuries before Jeremiah in the Babylonian exile that this was going to happen. Um, if you're a student of history, you can oftentimes see things happening before your very eyes that happened centuries ago and say, oh, we're going down that path again. This is what's going to happen. So by Deuteronomy chapter 4, we see Moses now having suffered to wander in the wilderness with the rest of the Israelites for 40 years because they refused to go into the land of promise. And he's seen them make stupid, stupid, stupid mistakes over and over again. They've been rebellious. They've pushed back against God, his ways, his law, his will for their lives. And so by the time you get to Deuteronomy, the next generation has come, the older generation has died off in the land, and Moses is now preparing them to enter the promised land, and listen what he tells them. This is rich. Deuteronomy 4, 26 to 31, today I call on heaven and earth as my witness against you. If you break my covenant, he's speaking on behalf of God, you will quickly disappear from the land you're crossing the Jordan to occupy. You will live there only a short time, and then you will be utterly destroyed. For the Lord will scatter you among the nations, where only a few of you will survive. Think of Jeremiah, now centuries later. Settle into the land of the Babylonians in the city you're at. Plant, plant yourselves down, build homes, gardens, have children and grandchildren as you're scattered among the nations. Verse 28, there in a foreign land you will worship idols made from wood and stone, gods that neither see nor hear or smell. He's saying, listen, even when you're sent into exile, you're going to continue to be rebellious and, and, and refuse to believe in me. But over the course of time, this is why 70 years was important. Over a course of time living that way, you will start to ask yourselves the question, what in the world are we doing? Have you ever gotten to the end of your rope or the bottom of the barrel and you said, what am I doing? Something's got to change. Verse 29, but from there, 
You will search again for the Lord your God. And if you search for him with all your heart and soul, you will find him. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Verse 30, in the distant future, when you're suffering all these things, you will finally return to the Lord your God and listen to what he tells you. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the solemn covenant he made with your ancestors. See, this is why I don't understand why the God of the Old Testament gets such a bad rap. See, God desires mercy. He desires grace. But he is also a God of justice. And when he's pushed to that point, justice must rule the day. God's judgment on the nation of Israel was his way of turning the hearts of his people back toward him. Though this might seem counterproductive, it is necessary to realign the hearts of the people back to God and right relationship with him. What is God doing in your life to wake you up to the reality of him? Maybe you've been living in a way that hasn't pleased him and definitely hasn't really done much for you either. And he's saying, maybe I need to let you suffer the consequences of certain behaviors in order to get your attention. There are only so many bridge out signs I can send you before you go over the cliff. Church, there have been bridge out signs for several generations in our culture that have said, whoa, 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 put the brakes on. Reassess the direction you're going. Because if you keep going in this direction, culture, church, individuals, you're going to go over the cliff. And I can only stop you so many times before you've hit that gas and you go over. Again, God is such a merciful and loving God, he allows us to choose. But sometimes in his mercy, before we go over the cliff, he puts us in a land of exile to wake us up. Do you hear me? And we're like, why is this happening, God? Why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening? And then you have other prophets of God who are out there saying, no, God's not mad at you. God is good. He loves you with all his heart, and he would never let anything bad happen to you. And then God says, no, 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 no. Those people aren't with me. I didn't send those prophets. I sent Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's been telling you what's getting ready to happen, and he's telling you the truth. Sometimes we don't like the message or the messenger that's giving us the truth, and so much so that we will imprison them, we will, we will mock them, we will reject the message. Which leads me to my last point, is not everyone who claims to speak on behalf of God is for God. There are a lot of false teachers and false prophets out there today preaching a false gospel. And again, this is why I say we live in a culture that is so uneducated by its own choice. Because we're willing to accept whatever we hear hook, line, and sinker. There are false prophets in the pulpits of our churches today that are saying, everything's okay, everything's all right. God's gonna bless. 
God's going to continue to lift us up as a nation. And I do believe God is good and will bring about his good purposes. But God is not for a nation that is not for him. He will only bear with rejection and disobedience for so long until he says, okay, if this is what you really want, you know how we see this in a practical way? Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth to minister. And he's ministering in the synagogue. And he speaks on Isaiah, the passage in Isaiah. And he says, today this has been accomplished before you. Speaking of himself. The coming Messiah. He's saying, what you guys have been waiting for is now happening. The day is here. And they start to wonder, isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's boy that grew up here? Yeah, that, that's Jesus, right? Yeah. Well, who was who he? And they start to really ask these questions. And Jesus says, the prophet's not honored in his own hometown. They start to get worked up. And they drag him out to the edge of the city to throw him off a cliff. Good times. See, this is what happens to God's prophets and even to God himself. When the ears of the people aren't tickled, they get mad. They get incensed at truth. When truth is spoken, it makes people angry that hate the truth. You see this a lot today. Do you not? Our culture, when you truly want to get into a dialogue with somebody who is rejecting the truth of the gospel of Christ, and you really say, all right, let's, let's, let's talk about this, and you confront falsehoods with the truth, what happens? The other person says, oh, I didn't realize that. Thank you for letting me know. No, what you're seeing on the news is, oh, yeah? Boom. I'm not saying you believe every messenger. So whose message do you believe? Don't believe Brandon's message. Don't. Don't believe Christie's message. Don't believe any of our pastor's message unless you've truly put the message you're hearing from their lips to the test. You have to know the word of God. You have to be a student of the word. You need to be able to know God's word in order to know the truth that can set you free. And you don't only need to know the written word of God, but the living word of God, the word that has become flesh, that dwelled among us. His name is Jesus. Without those two, you cannot know truth from false. You just can't. And I know this isn't a popular message today. And I know oftentimes the message that you get from this stage is not always tickle your ear friendly. But ladies and gentlemen, as I've been saying for the last few months, I'm concerned about where we are, not, as a, not, not just as a culture, but as a church. Are we willing to stand firm even when the truth is scoffed at? I hope so, for our sakes. 
Let me close with this. There are many false teachers and prophets in our world today that propagate the lies and deceptions of the enemy. And not everyone who claims to speak on behalf of God is actually for God or even from God. Only those who know the voice of God are able to discern his voice when he speaks through other people. Do you understand what I'm saying? See, it it behooves you to know the voice of God. That still small voice. One of the things I know, at least by experience and through what scripture states, is that God rarely goes around screaming and yelling. Do you understand me? Uh, As a parent, my kids can tell you we're a loud family. I, I, you know, even when I'm not trying to be, they're like, you, could you use an inside voice, Dad? But we are a loud family. And yes, there are times when a line is crossed with Dad that I yell. I'm not the perfect father. Here on Father's Day, my admission to you. But there is a perfect father. And when he speaks, he rarely raises his voice. What I often find, however, is if you don't tune your ear to the voice of God, you're never going to hear him over the loudness of your life. In order to be able to hear the voice of God, sometimes, many times, you have to pull your way from distractions, the loudness of the moment, and say, God, what are you... Okay, I can't make sense of anything that's going on right now in my life, in our world, in the church. I need need clarification. I need understanding. If you seek me, he says, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. But see, the problem is not many of us are willing to do that. Because it takes time, it takes energy, it takes discipline. And what, Pastor, you tell me what I, Pastor, you, you're the, you, you know, you speak on behalf of God, right? It's your job. Yes and no. I've been called to do what I do and to do it as faithfully as I, uh, faithfully as I know how to do it because I know I'll be judged in accordance with how I've used the gifts that God's entrusted to me. But I won't be judged based on the gifts God's entrusted to you. I won't be judged based on whether or not you accepted or rejected Christ. It's on you. You've got to do your due diligence. It's easier to go the route of the enemy. Jesus said this, the, way, the road to destruction is wide and the gate is wide that leads there. But the road to the kingdom of God, the road to Christ, it's very narrow and the gate's narrow and not many choose it. They don't choose it because We just want the easy route. We want a microwaved version of spirituality. We want a vending machine version of Christianity. Push a button and have it. We're not willing to do the hard work. But doing the hard work of living in relationship with Christ builds the spiritual muscles that are able to withstand the battle that you fight daily in the spiritual realm. And you got to be able to do that.
or you won't survive. Let me close with this as our worship team comes forward. There's a story told about a pilot who always looked down um, at a certain valley in the Appalachian Mountains when the plane passed over. And one day his co-pilot had asked him, I, I see you looking down in that valley all the time when we fly over this one area. Why do you, why do you, what's, what's specifically important about that spot? And the pilot replied, you see that stream down there that goes through the valley? He said, well, when I was a kid, down there at that stream fishing and enjoying summer days and fall and winter and spring, he said, I would look up and I would see planes flying over and, and I would wish I was up in one of those planes. He said, now I, I fly over this valley, as I often do, and I look down Wishing I was by that creek again. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the contentment of life and the peace that can only come in life is offered to you as a free gift. And some of you are searching in the wrong places, at the wrong times, in the wrong ways for the thing that you'll never find there, but you can only find through complete surrender to him. I preach, I've been preaching messages like this, quite honestly, going on nine years. I have amassed over um, 18 to 20 years of preaching around seven to 800 sermons, about seven to 10 pages in length, because I write them out. But the gospel message is still the same. And it exhausts ministers like myself. I'm not trying to drum up emotion. I got accused of that one time by my stepdad before he became a Christian. Why do you just pull on the heartstrings? You're just trying to manipulate people into an emotional frenzy. No, as a matter of fact, I'm trying to get them to make the most important decision of their lives that will affect them for their eternity. Um, I don't know if there's anything. Are you one foot in the kingdom and one foot out? Are you a toe in in the kingdom and one toe out of God's kingdom? Are you all the way in, but you keep a pinky hanging on the edge of that door? It's either all or nothing. If the church really wants to see a revival happen, Yes, it starts through prayer, but prayer is an entrance into that throne room of grace where we can experience the almighty God and all he has to offer. And you cannot enter that arrogantly, but you can enter it confidently, laying on your face before him in true unadulterated worship. See, that's where freedom lies. You cannot find freedom in anything else you search for in this life if you're not searching for it in him. So it's a final call, so to speak. The altars are always open. I pray that you'd make this decision today. Those of you at home that have heard this message, and maybe the Spirit, the Holy Spirit's with you there, and He is He is working on you. Kneel by your chair, by your couch, and you say this word of surrender to God. God, I am all of yours. I am not my own. I give myself to you completely this day.
All areas, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, all of it's yours. Take it and have your way. Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, and your love. Thank you for opportunities like this, at least while it's still called today, <laughs> to be able to speak a word to you of surrender. As a church, again, I beg your forgiveness. I know this church in over a century of existence has not always done it your way and followed your plans. And so I repent as the overseer of this congregation for decades and scores of years past where we've not followed you. Oh God, forgive us. Set us on a firm foundation of Jesus Christ and the word of God so that we might be ablaze for the truth, that God, we might be truly a city on a hill here in Butler. Bring revival in your way and in your time, I pray, dear Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.